Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Hello and welcome to The Rest is History. There are bad reviews and then there is the obituary that the gonzo journalist Hunter S. Thompson gave President Richard Nixon. If the right people had been in charge of Nixon's funeral, Thompson wrote, his casket would have been launched into one of those open sewage canals that empty into the ocean just south of Los Angeles. He was a swine of a man and a jabbering dupe of a president. Nixon was so crooked that he needed servants to help him screw his pants on every morning. Even his funeral was legal. He was queer in the deepest way. His body should have been burned in a trash bin. And as I read that, I hear the laughter from top historian of modern America, Dominic Sandbrook. And Dominic, you gave me that quote. I'm not going to pretend I that I found I it did. myself. Obviously a favourite of yours. Um, and today's episode, it, it's, it's not on Nixon per se, but it's on Watergate. And Nixon obviously lies at the absolute heart of that scandal. Um, and I thought that the, maybe the best we've got had loads and loads of questions on this. But I thought maybe the way to kick it off is with a friend of the show, Stephen Jensen, who asks, what is it about Watergate that has made the suffix gate synonymous with scandal? Compared to the alternatives, does it deserve the dubious honour of being the linguistic mother of all scandals? Well, that's a great question, Tom. As you know, I've been looking forward to doing this since we started this podcast. And um, just on the Hunter S. Thompson line, I used to get my students, we did a whole course on Nixon that ran all year. They, we had four hours every week just on Nixon uh, in their third year. And I used to get them to read that obituary and write, um, and, and write kind of comments on it. Hunter S. Thompson actually travelled with Nixon in the 1972 uh, election campaign. He wrote a book about it, didn't he? And they talked fear about... Fear and loathing? Yeah, fear and loathing on the campaign trail. And they talked about American football. Uh, Hunter S. Thompson was astounded by Nixon's knowledge of American football. Uh, so they did have a little bit. There was a little bit of common ground between the two of them. Um, but Stefan's question, which is a great question. Nixon is at the core of Watergate. So part of it is the character is this extraordinary Shakespearean character um, that we'll be talking about in a second. It's also because I think Watergate is the first great TV scandal. So it plays out live on American television often. 
Um, the Senate hearings are on TV every afternoon where soap operas used to be. So there's this sense of this kind of melodrama and these extraordinary characters. I mean, we're going to come to some of these characters. You know, the the actual essence of the scandal is actually pretty small, but it comes to consume this sort of almost Dickensian cast of kind of misfits and eccentrics. And it well, takes it's not the scandal, it's the cover-up. That's, that's the Yeah, although the it? scandal itself is a pretty good scandal. I mean, bugging, okay. you, you know, your opponent's headquarters. And actually, it's also what the scandal reveals about the Nixon White House and Nixon's own bizarre and tortured psychology. I mean, I think that... Um, I, I like to think that this, uh, this podcast is definitely the podcast for 70s political scandals. I'd, so we've already done the Jeremy Thorpe yeah, scandal, yeah. which features dead dogs... And fruit machine magnates. And all kind yeah. of fruit machine magnates. But it's... it's I mean, is, is, is as British as a carry-on film. <laughs> Whereas this, this is the scandal for imperial America. It is. Uh, and I guess that that's why it has the resonance that perhaps the Jeremy Thorpe well, scandal well, doesn't. Well, it's the combination, actually, Tom. You're absolutely right. It is the, the climax of what political historians call the imperial presidency, so the kind of Cold War presidency. But it's the combination of that with the humdrum everyday, very human kind of almost petty resentments of Nixon himself that drive the scandal. I mean, I've got so much to say about this, but so much of it is about Nixon, because without Nixon, there is no Watergate. He's at the absolute centre of it. And, and, okay. and lying at the centre is his background and his, all his okay. pent-up resentments. So on that topic, we have, we have a question from James Baggerly. I hope I've pronounced his name right. How important is Richard Nixon's feeling of outsider status in understanding his actions? And do you both agree, effectively, Dominic, do you agree, <laughs> that what links Trump and Nixon is that they're both driven by an anger towards a ruling class that will never truly accept them? Now, I think we should just park the comparison with, with Trump okay. for now. Yeah. Yeah. But that question about, about Nixon's upbringing, sense of himself as an outsider, important? Uh, it's very important. And this is great because I can now launch into my hour-long prepared um, <laughs> uh, biography of, of Richard Nixon. So, as I said, I taught this course on Nixon that went all year. And I, um, the first thing I got the students to get the students to do, I used to say, well, we're not going to call him Nixon. We should call him Dick throughout. Uh, because I really wanted them to empathise with Nixon, also just amuse me in a very childish way. And um, I think getting inside, as I used to you say to them, them Dick. you've got to get inside Dick's head. And um, I thought I think that's absolutely crucial to understanding how the scandal played out. So let's talk about Nixon. Nixon is born in 1913 in a place called Yorba Linda, California, which is this scruffy, um, sort of nondescript edge of L.A., kind of now a suburb, but then kind of on the edge of L.A., quite rural. And he's absolutely one of those people that we talked about in our California podcast and again in our Silicon Valley podcast. Um, he's a white um, he's a white Protestant kind of Midwestern American stock. Kind he's of Quaker, Middle isn't he? American. He is a Quaker, and that's really important. So his and Quakers don't swear. They don't. They don't drink. They don't swear. They don't dance. They don't approve of kind of fun, to put it bluntly. So his parents, Frank and Hannah, they've moved from kind of the Midwest, and they are the classic kind of people who move to California, and it doesn't quite work out. It, everything goes wrong. So they found uh, a lemon ranch and it doesn't work. They don't sell any lemons. And then they found a grocery store and a garage and a kind of garage, a gas station attached to it. And it's really hard work. And young Richard has to get up at four o'clock and kind of load, I don't know, potatoes or whatever it is. Um, so he grows up in, in relative poverty in this Midwest, in this Quaker family 
uh, Midwestern stock in California, there's this there's this sense of disappointment that hangs over them in the kind of 1910s, 1920s, 1930s. He's one of multiple brothers. You'd enjoy this, Tom. They're all named after, well, four of the five are named after English kings. So there's Harold, Arthur, um, Richard, and Edward. And then there's also Donald, who's... <laughs> so which Richard is um, is Richard Nixon named after? Richard the Lionheart, apparently. Presumably not Richard the Third. No, 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 although that's a great comparison. <laughs> um, or indeed Richard the Second. No, he's Richard the Lionheart. Yeah. Um, So two of the brothers die of tuberculosis, um, Harold and Arthur, and this kind of hangs over the family. It's quite a sort of grim environment. Nixon says in his memoirs, his mother mother never hugged him or showed him any physical affection, but he could see from her eyes that she loved him. So it was (laughs) sort of very telling. So a a kind of classic upper class British... Maybe, (laughs) yes, yes, I suppose so. Except the difference is they're so poor. So Nixon is that that classic thing. He's very driven. He's very bright. He does very well at school. And he's offered a scholarship, I think, or offered a place at Harvard. Um, there's no doubt that he's very clever. I mean, this is why the Donald Trump comparison rather falls down. He can't take it up because he's needed at home to help. Um, and also because his brother is ill and his mum needs to look after the care and all this kind of thing. So Nixon goes to his local college, Whittier College. And right there, you have the... Orig- you could almost say Watergate starts right there. He is... Um, and a bit of an outsider, kind of a lower middle class, kind of poor, relatively poor kid, although very bright. He talks later on about the laughs and slights and snubs that he suffers when he's there. He's not allowed, he's not invited to join the top fraternity on campus who are called the Franklins. I think we talked about this right at the beginning of the podcast series with um, Trump and Caesar and all that sort yeah. of stuff. Uh, he, so he founds his own called the Orthogonians, the square shooters, who are for the kind of outsiders. And right there you have this, he's got that sense, um, I, I hate to say this Tom, but it's you and your, your yachting shoes. Nixon, Richard Nixon <laughs> is a man who goes through life permanently in the wrong shoes. Um, there's even a, Kennedy. There's even a very famous Kennedy story. Kennedy knows what, yeah, the right ones to That wear. Nixon is told to do a Kennedy style photo op by his aides and he walks onto the beach and he's wearing, his shoes are too smart. He's wearing smart kind of office shoes when he should be wearing kind of, you know, deck shoes, your yeah. your yachting shoes. So yeah. that that nags at him the whole time. He actually does really well. He goes to Duke Law School. He goes into the Navy. He's a lieutenant. He's presumably on a scholarship. Yeah, he's he's very Duke. bright. Um, everybody says he's hardworking. Interestingly, one of the things people say about him at this stage is he's honest. Uh, so yeah. he's he's not un, he's not unpopular, Tricky. but he's just. He's an outsider. He's a he's that classic. He has heart. quite a good war, doesn't he? Yeah, he's a quartermaster in the navy. Um, so 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 Quakers don't fight either. So he could have. So he right. He I mean, overcomes he that. A, and his Quakerism, I think, doesn't matter to him, kind of theologically, as it were. Yeah, I think it matters culturally, and I think there's yeah. always this sense of Nixon that he's a bit. Repre- somebody's always always having more fun than he is, and he's missing out. Yeah. And it's and it obviously becomes the Kennedys, and you can absolutely see. I mean, we'll come back to this point. But you can absolutely see he is that classic, you know, that the self-made driven kid, very bright, who's conscious that he's missing out, that other people have a okay. grace and elegance and ease. He's never going to be James Bond. OK, you know. OK. So 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 just so he then he, he kind of gets into Republican. Yeah, because Republican he's a Quaker, party. by the way, he makes and he, he has to he go into the Republican Party because he's a Protestant, because that's the, the thing that you do. OK, so, so just. This idea that the, the 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 kind of guy who's looking up at the the elite, yeah, I mean that that that's I guess 
kind of something that is a feature of the Republican Party now. But not then, you're right. The, the, yeah, Nixon's one of the people who... Who's so it's the, unusual, isn't it? It's quite that, unusual. It, he's a, and it's, so, so in a sense, is he kind of... I mean, he's a, he's a kind of portent of this idea that the deplorables are going to sign up to the Republican a Party little bit, rather than a to little the Democrat bit, yes, Party. Yes, a little bit. He doesn't really emphasise that as much in the 1940s and 1950s, but certainly later on. Um, he's, he's the man who coins the phrase the silent majority... He talks again and again when he's president about the little guy, the little man, the common man, all these kinds of things. So absolutely he does that. He's absolutely part of that kind of realignment. And he's a big anti-communist. Yeah. So here's an interesting thing. Nixon, right from the start, is regarded as a, as a deplorable himself by the kind of patrician, liberal, kind of democratic elite. He, I think it's because California politics is pretty rough. He uses anti-communism in 1946 and again in 1950 when he runs for the Senate. Um, he, he always seems to, there's this weird thing, which I, I, he, he always seems to fight a little bit dirtier or to be a bit more competitive than everybody else. And it's not just a question of substance, it's a question of style, actually. So mm -hmm. something that you would forgive in a more patrician who would then be able to make a joke about it afterwards. Nixon, there's always this stuff that he is, he's, he starts to be perceived quite early on as kind of dark, jowly, over-aggressive. So there's a famous cartoonist of the 50s called Herblock who was always drawing him kind of cl climbing in or out of a, a sewer. Um, <laughs> and, um, and then he really... So that's the thing that Thompson picks up on. Yes. And he really disgraces himself in the eyes of the sort of patrician liberals um, in the early 1950s when he exposes a genuine communist spy, a guy called Alger Hiss in the State Department. So I thought that was contested. It used to be spy. contested, but it's not really contested anymore. Um sort of declassified Soviet um, archives show that beyond, I, th I would say, reasonable doubt, I mean, some people will disagree, but beyond reasonable okay. doubt, Hiss was a, a fellow traveller, probably a communist spy. Nixon exposes him in a very aggressive way. And this is perceived as, you know, it's in for a dig. It's not what you do. Mm -hmm. Alger Hiss was one of us, very well educated, Vulgar. nice fellow, you know, lovely guest at a dinner party. Nixon's this god-awful hick from, you know, California. Yeah. Um, so, so people hold that against him, but that gets in the place as vice president to Eisenhower. But then, when he when he gets when he gets that ticket, doesn't he then run into problems again? He does. There's some he does. scandal. So this is a nothing scandal. It's a, it's a made up scandal, really, uh, that he has been profiting from a fund for Republican donors in California. But he have the essence of Nixon's appeal because what Nixon does, Nixon is terrified that Eisenhower is going to drop him from the ticket. Eisenhower, World War Two general, um, because he thinks. Eisenhower has basically made it clear that he thinks of Nixon as a kind of an ant beneath his shoe, and that he's and um, <laughs> his Batman. Yeah, he despises Nixon. He th I mean, he basically signs up. He just Nick, he regards Nixon as an unfortunate necessity. Um, so Nixon makes this unprecedented live TV address. Right. Okay. So Dominic, and Dominic, in, we mentioned the Jeremy Thorpe scandal. Yes, which featured a dead dog. Yeah, this features a live. You've dog. You've got to have a dog in every podcast, right? So this yes. is a live dog. Nixon basically says, the show there, are two, there are two great moment. lines. So one of them, he basically says, this is all nonsense. There was a fund, but I haven't profited from it. You know, it's perfectly legal, blah, blah, blah. He says people, the, one of the most damaging allegations is that people say my wife, Pat, has got a, a mink coat. And he says she has not got a mink coat. She has a respectable Republican cloth coat. And all across the land, people are saying, oh, hurrah for Nixon. <laughs> Isn't this wonderful? And then he says, now there is one gift that we have that we have taken. He said, somebody read in the newspaper that my girls, Trisha and Julie, um, they wanted a dog. And what did they send us in a box? They sent us a lovely dog. Um, and the girls called him Checkers. 
and the girls love the dog. And whatever they say about it, we're going to keep it or something. And of course, you see, high-minded Tom Hollandish people across America are vomiting Vomited. into their yeah, waste paper <laughs> baskets. And salt of the earth Dominic Sambrooks are wiping away manly tears <laughs> and saying, what a man, what a family. <laughs> so, yeah. so I think Eisenhower was one of these people who's vomiting into a waste paper basket. But he's forced, his hand has been forced by Nixon. So Nixon then stays mm-hmm. on, as, on the ticket. Um, and then, of course, there's another great sort of crisis in Nixon's life. Uh, so in 1960, he... He basically inherits the Republican nomination from Eisenhower. Has he been a good vice president? He's been all right, actually. Yeah, he's done more than any vice president before. I mean, Eisenhower treats him like dirt throughout and tries to get rid of him in 1956. But Nixon's like a sort of, he's like a cockroach. He can't be killed. So Nixon goes on trips and stuff and people throw stones at him in South America. um, Communists, uh, presumably. Yeah, so he kind of, he's he's fine. And he's right in the centre of the Republican Party. Standing up to communism. He's He's yeah. He's a moderate. He's actually not on the right. He's he's slap bang in this sort of sense. He'd fit perfectly into kind of the Tory party of the 1950s, actually, in England. So he's the Republican candidate in 1960, and he's against basically his worst nightmare, uh, an East Coast patrician, han- incredibly handsome, you know. Who absolutely know the right shoes to wear on a Yeah, yacht. a man who's completely oversexed, who's always wearing yachting shoes. A man who'd won the Pulitzer Prize for something that his, his, somebody else had written for him. Uh, a man whose father had got his mates to do his university thesis for him. John F. Kennedy. So a man who's got the, all the grace and elegance and all the connections, everything that Nixon hasn't got. And Kennedy wins by this very tight margin after a debate in which Nixon is perceived to have done better on radio and famously worse on television because he looks sweaty and kind of jowly and... And stuff and his shadow exactly and what's worse what's even worse for nixon is that he he could have won that election actually i mean I, what i mean is he may well have won that election but his, didn't kennedy's daddy buy it right him? there were allegations of uh, um, vote stuffing in illinois and in texas maybe not enough but enough for there to be a, a question but, mark and nixon doesn't contest Dominic, the results unlike donald yeah. trump Right, so I was going to say because because we we've already had the comparison um, with uh, with Trump raised. I mean that it, Nixon doesn't contest it, even though he thinks it might have happened for the good of the American Republic. Yeah, for the good of the American is, Republic. Is that fair? But well, it's partly that. It's also because partly around people around him are saying, you know, this is we're in the middle of the Cold War. You know, this is you shouldn't really contest it. And it's not like he takes ages to make a decision. He doesn't he, straight away. He basically or very quickly he decides he's not going to contest it, and it is the right decision. Um, it's you know, the it patriotic is the, decision. Yeah, it is the patriotic decision, and I think it's also the right decision from his own sort of career point of view. Because of course, he does then come back eight years later to become the Republican nominee in 1968. So he kind of instead of going off to become a, I mean, he does go off to become a New York lawyer, but his heart's not really in it. What he really wants to do is get back into politics. He has that. Burning, he tries to, but, to. He he runs. He runs for the uh, governorship of California. He does in 1962, and it doesn't really work out. And that doesn't go well. No, and at the end, he loses to uh, Pat Brown. And at the end, he, he, sh- he, he loses it with the press. And he says, you know, you've got what you wanted. Well, gentlemen, you won't have Nixon to kick around anymore. And they all say, oh, typical Nixon, such a bad loser. He's such a sort of, you know, he's such a scumbag from, the, from your Belinda. Of course, he doesn't know how to behave. Um, but that aside, after that, he then kind of slightly reinvents himself as the kind of sane centre of the Republican Party. So he basically just... And spe- the context for this, the, the context for this, I guess, 
going into 67, 68 is the counterculture. Yeah. Protests against the Vietnam War. Absolutely. Hippies, yeah. all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And, and he's a he's a he's a guy who wears business shoes to the beach. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> it's all about shoes, shoes and dogs. What this podcast is all about, <laughs> what we really specialize in. That's absolutely right. So America feels like but it's, it's, it's unraveling. So it's the culture war. The Democrats. It's, it's yeah. the first blast of, of the culture war as we would now recognize. A little bit, actually. Yes, a little bit. The Democrats are tearing themselves apart. Lyndon Johnson's been sort of booted out because of Vietnam. Uh, you're right that the the headlines are full of rioting. The civil rights movement um, has sort of passed its peak and uh, Martin Luther King has been assassinated and then Robert Kennedy is... And against that background, Nixon basically says, you know, I am the 50s in human form. I am... I I promise law and order. He says law and order again and again. He says he has a secret plan to end the Vietnam War. You won't tell anybody what it is, but people say, oh, that sounds splendid. Yes, um, hurrah. So he is elected. Quite a tight election, but it's, you know, it's fine. He gets in. He gets in. Um, And Okay, so... Yeah. So he becomes president, and I think it's time for another question, this time from Classicist, who asks, for most people, Nixon is synonymous with Watergate and nothing else. Did he have any significant political achievements during his presidency that have been overlooked or ignored? What would his legacy have been if Watergate had never happened? OK, well, that's a, so, that's a great question. Um, at, so his presidency is very turbulent, but you could argue quite successful. So he takes office. At, well, he gets the moon landings, doesn't he? For well, that's, I mean, that's not that. He must have enjoyed that because, because that was a kind of Kennedy thing. It was thing. a Kennedy he thing, then, yes. He's unable to pocket. Yeah, I think so, he has probably has slightly mixed feelings about it because everyone knows it's a Kennedy thing. But you're right. He does. He does sort of. He congratulates the astronauts and stuff. Um, he Vietnam completely overshadows his first term, trying to trying to pull out. I mean, basically, he escalates in order to get out by widening the war into Cambodia. Um, massive student protests throughout his whole first term. Um, but actually, when you go through, I mean, I, I don't think I'm out on a limb here. Almost all historians of Nixon's presidency would say this. When you go through policy by policy, he's actually pretty moderate. So his ambition is to be, and these are his kind of words with his aides, the American Disraeli, a Tory man with liberal measures. And actually, you can look at lots of things. He thinks about, talks about having a guaranteed income, which is a thing that people talk about now, sort of left-wing idea. Uh, and, he, and Dominic, hadn't he... Um, uh, I, I mean, he'd, he'd been in favour of the civil rights Yeah, he's pretty moderate on civil rights. in the early rights. 60s. He's, exactly, yeah. he's pretty moderate on civil rights. When it suits him, he bangs the law and order drum, and he sort of condemns radicals and all this kind of thing. But by and large, yes, he is on the sort of moderate wing of the Republican Party on civil rights. He's um, keen on kind of the environment. I mean, he sort of moans and groans about it, but he does it. Um, he he goes to China. He goes, well, of course, this is about to get into it. His foreign policy achievements are his big thing. So he goes to Moscow and he goes to Beijing. I mean, amazing. And lots of people say only Nixon because could have the, done this because he has the anti... Because the... the the United States, had, had they recognised China up to that point? No. Or what, what no. relations? So basically their relations were, were non-existent, utterly non-existent. Because they'd recognised Taiwan as right. legitimate Right, exactly. So he ditches them China. and gets into bed basically with, with... But I mean the imagery. Nixon on the Great Wall of China. Nixon in Beijing. It's kind a of great clinking, wall. <laughs> yes, this is a, a great wall, as he says. Um, <laughs> Nixon kind of clinking glasses with, um, uh, with Mao Zedong. I mean... That's that's extraordinary. And then he does the same with Brezhnev in Moscow. So this is the heyday of détente. And he and Henry Kissinger, as Secretary of State, work incredible. I mean, this is basically their passion. Um, they think they're reordering the world. 
and and uh, and actually they are. You know, the, Nixon's meeting with Mao is the moment that China comes out of the cold. And and if you stand right back from this, that's more significant than anything Eisenhower, Kennedy, Johnson yeah. did, arguably. I mean, I know that American listeners will say, oh, the civil rights movement is the big story. And of course, in many ways it is for Americans. But in terms of world politics, yeah. Nixon going to China yeah. is absolutely seismic. Um, okay, and is that, that's in his first term? Yeah. Right, so, so 72, he, he wins re-election. I yeah, mean, he, so we're he, yet he to get to actually again. Watergate itself, but right, 72. Okay, but let's, just, let's, just, but let's just go through what, what he does in his presidency. So 72, we'll the Democrats do a sort of, they do a British Labour Party in 1983. So they nominate um, a, a, a very impressive and admirable man who is a ridiculous man to choose as your nominees. They nominate a man called George McGovern. He was a bomber pilot in World War II. He's, an ap- he's a historian. Tom, he's got a history PhD. He's a very mm-hmm. admirable, decent guy, but he he's a he's a kind of on the liberal wing of the Democratic Party. He's the Michael Foot. He is the Michael Foot of, yeah. of American politics. And right from the moment they nominate him, it's obvious that Nixon is going to win. Uh, the Republicans call him the candidate of the three A's: acid, amnesty, and abortion. Amnesty for world for Vietnam War draft evaders. Um, and Nick, and McGovern never shakes the tag, and which Nixon wins this colossal landslide massive landslide biggest republican landslide i think ever at that point and if you want a, a clue of richard nixon's tortured psychology it's this what does he do on the night of that landslide victory he goes alone to his study in the white house and he kind of turns off all the lights except this um except this desk light so he's sitting like this sort of vampiric figure in the darkness he puts on his one of his favorite mu- um, pieces of music which is victory at sea a sort of really kind of rubbishy 1950s, 1960s kind of classical soundtrack, um, <laughs> imagining ships clashing in the, in, the, in the storm. So he listens to that silent, kind of alone, head in his hands. And then he gets out a pad and he starts writing down what people will say about him, about his failures. Um, so he writes, the opposition line will be, RN let down his party. Um, all this stuff. Oh, if only he'd known what people would write about. I know it's I, it, Dominic. I, Dominic, I think that's the perfect note on which to go and take a break. Okay. So this episode is about Watergate. So far, we haven't got to. It's like you we, and Scottish we've politics. Done what, it's like you and Macbeth. I know. I know. Orthopoly or whatever. I know. But that's fine. I mean, if needs be, we can go into another episode. That's that's. I think we're fine. clearly going to have to so, do another episode. So let's take a let's take a break, and then when we come back, um, are you ready to to I'm, actually look at? I'm Watergate absolutely poised. Happened? I'm I'm pumped. Okay. Brilliant. Okay, fabulous. When we get back, Watergate. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into.
I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, welcome back to The Rest is History. Our topic today is Watergate and in classic Rest is History style, we've done off an episode and we're yet to mention it. Um, So Dominic, Watergate. um, What is it? What's going on? So right from the start of Nixon's presidency, um, his administration had kept had started crossing the line. Um, in terms, as we've as we said before the break, it's an, an era of intense domestic turbulence, but it's also an era when they're in a war. Okay, can, oh, just on that, the question from Guillermo Te Avaledo. We'll never get to Watergate, Richard, Tom. <laughs> no, no, but this, I think this ties in. Richard Nixon's personality and anguishes have been storied and abused, but how much was his seeming paranoia against his adversaries justified? The US were on the height of radical mobilisation by the early 70s. Um, so is that the context? Is, is, is Nixon feeling... Yeah, properly paranoid. Yeah, I think it's not the nineteen. It's not the nineteen fifties. I think that's a reasonable point. I mean, even as Henry Kissinger famously said, even paranoid people do have enemies, um, and uh, they feel embattled at various points in his first term. The White House is literally surrounded by student protesters, so they can't really go out, and Washington is is brought to a halt. There are there is some domestic terrorism by kind of far left groups like the Weathermen. Um, in the late 60s, early 70s. There are the Black Panthers. I mean, all these things mm-hmm. are kind of exaggerated a little bit within the Nixon White House. That's John Lennon. <laughs> John, yes, and Elvis offering to help uh, bring him down. Um, yeah. So, so yeah. yeah, so so Nixon, um, I think Nixon genuinely feels, that, Nixon and Kissinger generally, they, they, they feel they're in a war. And they also feel that they can't trust the people around them. So from 1969 onwards, both Nixon and Henry Kissinger are are constantly putting pressure on other people to find out who's leaking. They call for FBI wiretaps. Kissinger wants his own staff to be bugged to find out who's leaking to the press. 
Um, and in 1970, the Nixon administration, there's a talk, some of his aides talk about setting up their own intelligence service within the White House, not the FBI, not the CIA, but answerable only to Nixon and his aides that will basically, you know, survey their enemies, sort of do dirty tricks, all these kinds of things. And you get the first... And how legal would that have been? Very been completely illegal. But, of course, Nixon and his okay. aides are saying to each other, um, it's, the, the kind of people in Nixon's White House are really important. So they're not often traditional party political people. They're people he's brought with him from California. They're people who worked in TV or advertising. They're loyal just to Nixon, not to the party so or get, not to... So, so who are the most significant? So his chief of staff in, is a in, man called H.R. Haldeman. Uh, so I think he's a former advertising man. Um, uh, he's loyal purely to Nixon. So this is kind of Praetorian Guard. Praetorian Guard, exactly. The Berlin Wall, as they're called. H.R. Haldeman, John Ehrlichman, who is his um, uh, domestic policy chief, a guy called Charles Colson, who everybody calls an evil genius, who basically goes around telling everybody he's an evil genius. Right, like Dominic Cummings. Right, exactly. Who's his political... (laughs) Dr. um, Evil. Henry Kissinger, obviously, is his national security advisor. And, and a lot of these people don't have, maybe not so much Kissinger, but the others don't have links to the traditional kind of press elite. They're not part of that kind of what we in Britain would call the Westminster bubble. They're outsiders. OK, and so again, that is kind of a parallel with Trump. Well, uh, to a degree. I mean, Trump brings in kind of all kinds of old people who... I suppose to, uh, to some extent, but I, I mean, actually, this is that... Because some of these people are very bright people that Nixon has around, and they're bright, talented, self-made people. I mean, they're not the kind of... Okay, well, let's flagrantly corrupt kind of characters. But but in 1971, they do their first really big dirty trick, the first antecedent of Watergate, which is there's been leaks from within. There's been all these leaks about Vietnam. And a guy called Daniel Ellsberg links the, the Pentagon Papers, as they're called, this huge tranche of documents about Vietnam to show the government has been lying about Vietnam for years. But, you know, going back to kind of Kennedy and Johnson, he leaks it to the press. Kissinger and um, Nixon say this is utterly intolerable and they get a unit within the White House who call themselves the plumbers because their job is to stop leaks. And the plumbers (laughs) burgle (laughs) Daniel Ellsberg's psychiatrist in, I think it's Los Angeles, to look for documents that will smear him. And that's the first real serious criminality, I would say. And And does Nixon know what they're doing? Well, this is the question. We don't really know, but I think it's. I think Nixon definitely. Kind of nod and a wink. Nixon undoubtedly knows that something's going on because we know that throughout 1971 he is haranguing his men and saying, I need you to find dirt on the opposition. I need you to go in. And he becomes obsessed with this one think tank in Washington called the Brookings Institution, which still exists. He tells them again and again, I want you to get in there and blow the safe and find out what they've got. I mean, at one point of they the Brookings Institute. What of the Brookings yeah of this think tank? At one point they cook up so a scheme. What's he, what's, what's, why is he so? He doesn't know it? what they've got, but he thinks it might be interesting. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. um, so at one point, but, Tom, okay, but Dominic, at one point, what I don't listen to this. At one point, they're gonna. He says, "Why don't you firebomb it?" They have this plan to firebomb it, and then they'll all be dressed as firefighters, and they'll run in, steal all the documents, <laughs> and run out again. So plumbers and firemen. Yeah. Um, and the guys he's got doing this are bonkers. So one guy is called Howard Hunt. He was in the CIA and he was one of the orchestrators of the Bay of Pigs shambles at the beginning of the 1960s. So that's him. The other man is even an even more interesting man, a brilliant man, a man called G. Gordon Liddy. Are you aware of this man? 
He's the one who, who gets nailed for it, doesn't he? Yeah. And he ends up being pardoned by Reagan? Uh, does he get pardoned? Somebody? I can't remember. He's basically, he's a Nazi. <laughs> he's dead now, so I can okay. say it. Because when the BBC filmed him for their Watergate documentary, he had himself filmed um, in front of this huge collection of guns <laughs> that he owned. And somebody who was involved with that said to me, well, that, you should think that's bad. In the next room, he had all like Nazi flags and pictures of Lenny Riefenstahl and stuff. I mean, he's an absolute lunatic. And he says on camera in the BBC documentary... You know, if Richard Nixon had told me to go and assassinate such and such a columnist, I was poised to do it. I was waiting for the... Uh... Okay, so so you've, you've given the sketch of Nixon as a, a kind of moderate Republican. Yeah. With a, with a lot of domestic and foreign policy successes to his name. I mean, clearly a very, very able, smart yeah. guy. Why is he employing a Nazi? I mean, I know what I know what the countercultural, the Hunter S. Thompson answer to that would be. He's a fascist, yeah. Be, but because he is a fascist, yeah. but but I mean, he, he doesn't sound. Well, like I think he Gordon is. Liddy is a bit of an out, is a bit of eccentric, and yeah, his and his so. sort of strange Nazi. I mean, there is a story that he started showing footage of Nuremberg rallies or something in the White House. Um, <laughs> Triumph well, of the did will. Did not raise eyebrows? I or? think people just thought he's eccentric. They kind of smirked. You know, I, I think they... Because, I mean, the rest of them aren't Nazis. They're nothing like Nazis. They're actually pretty moderate Republicans as well. But it's very Dr. Strangelove. It is a bit. It is a bit. <laughs> but Liddy is a... I mean, so, so they're hanging around. They're hanging around the, the Nixon White House. And, and the, the, the presidential campaign comes around. And Nixon says to his men, because Nixon believes in fighting really hard, if not dirty. Even though he, know, he must know that he's going to beat but, McGovern. But, Tom, he's paranoid. He feels it's, okay, he, yes. he's always he it's always been taken away from him. He's always been cheated by the Eastern establishment, and right at the beginning of 1972, and he and he says, to, I mean, his the committee to re-elect the president, as they call, they're actually the CRP, but everybody calls them Creep now because they they're just kind of you know, yeah, great acronym exactly. Um, they're having all these meetings, and Nixon says, you know, I need to find out that you're fighting really tough, that you're doing tough things. So so Liddy and Hunt have this ridiculous plan. It's got Operation Gemstone, they call it. I mean, some of it's absurd. They're going to deliver. I think they do do it. They deliver. They they order a thousand pizzas and have them have them sent to the Democratic National Committee. Just loot with a bill. Just loot. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> just have well, to, to kind of bankrupt right, the Democrats. Just laughable. <laughs> Liddy also. Go, I mean, Liddy literally goes into a meeting and says, "I have a plan to. I'm going to." Um, Hire a houseboat in Miami, and have it and have it staffed by the finest prostitutes in Florida, and then I will lure senior Democrats to this houseboat, or whatever, and they will be. Which, which, which presumably is playing into the kind of the dark Quaker sense of maybe, yeah. Well, Nixon's not in the meeting. Demo- to be fair, Nixon's not in the meeting about the prostitutes. But you're right. I think well. The, the amazing thing is that when you hear the Nixon people talking about this, as they do and uh, have done in documentaries since, they don't just say, this was absolutely laughable and we're all wetting ourselves with amusement. <laughs> they, they seriously consider some of these ideas. <laughs> and they allow Liddy and Hunt, to, these clowns, to keep kind of, you know, walking around the White House or whatever, um, but it's, it's, suggesting mad it's, schemes. I mean, it's a bit like all the CIA plans to to kill castro right I mean, exploding cigar them, you can't believe that these guys are serious remember there was a seashell he would they, they would plant a sea exploding yeah. seashell on the seabed that he would pick up <laughs> and there was also they were going to uh, get 
powder that would make his beard fall out that would humiliate him in the eyes of his Cuban fans. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you just don't know, do you, whether people are sitting around in meetings just completely taking the piss or whether they genuinely think these are good ideas. Anyway, anyway, so basically they're having all these meetings and they come up with a scheme. They're going to bug the Democratic National Committee. Now, the amazing thing about this, right, is that at this point, it's pretty obvious that Nixon is going to win the election yeah. by a, a massive margin. You know, he's going to coast. He could just stay in bed. So he doesn't need to He play could this. stay in bed for six months and he'd still win the election. It's, it's yeah. mad. They, it's, everything is a shambles. They break into the Democratic... OK, OK. okay. So, so just, just before we actually do this, yeah. um, a question from Miguel de Miel. What did the president know about the break-in and when did he know it? So is, is, so is this being licensed by Nixon? I think it's highly unlikely. We don't know about the, um, whether, how much he knows beforehand. It's highly unlikely that he knows operational details. Um, on the other hand, it is likely that he knows they are going to do something. He knows they're up to no good. He is the very man who has been telling them about firebombing think tanks. Yeah, so he's been leaning on them. He's been leaning on them. The pressure is coming undoubtedly from the top. What are you doing? And in a way, it's that, that weird thing where in any organisation, they just basically need to be able to tick a box that says, have firebombed somebody, have ordered pizzas, <laughs> yes. you know, yes. to get yes. Nixon off their case because he's pestering yeah. them. So they break into the Democratic National Committee in this sort of grim, concrete monolith called the Watergate Building. Um, which is in Washington. Which is in Washington. And, and surprise, surprise, the bugs that they plant, so they break in through an underground kind of um, car park, the garage at the bottom of the building. And the bugs don't really, they, I don't know, they don't work or they can't hear anything properly. And they say, we'll have to go back in and, and, and bug it again. So on the 17th of June, 1972, um, five men, I've got their names written down somewhere, if you'd like to know who they are. Uh, yeah, would. Yeah. They are James McCord, Frank Sturgis, Bernard Barker, Virgilio Gonzalez and Eugenio Martinez. So they're basically, the majority of them are Cubans. They are people who worked for Howard Hunt when he was in charge of kind of Bay of Pigs, Cuban exile, CIA stuff. They're kind so of they're weird. Republican true believers. Yeah, they're kind of weird kind of Cuban exiles it, sort yeah. of hanging around on the fringes of the CIA. Massively anti-communist. Massively anti-communist. So if they're told yeah. they're doing a job for the White House, they'll be delighted. So they yeah. break him. And then there's this kind of comedy of errors. So the doors are sort of self-closing doors, sort of self-locking. So they have to put masking tape over the kind of the, the bolts. And the, um, the security guard, who what's his name? Frank Wills, I think his name is. He, um, he spots the tape and he thinks, oh, that's weird. On the, on the doors leading from the, car, the garage underneath the, the building. And he takes the tape off. He then goes off. They sneak back again and put the tape the door back again. <laughs> He comes back, they've gone, he spots the tape again, he thinks, this is really weird, and he calls the police. So the cops pitch up, they arrest these five blokes with walkie-talkies, and what then happens is one of them in his address book has H.H., um, H. Howard Hunt, um, the guy who was you know, one of the plumbers, and the FBI start to, they think this is weird, it's kind of some political crime, and they they. They basically trace that number. And they're like, oh, it's a White House number. That's very weird. So at that point, the interesting point, the interesting question, which some people have raised, I know, is at that point, what can Nixon do? What can the White House do? 
It's a difficult one. So six days after that, there's what's called the smoking gun conversation. Because, of course, Nixon is taping himself. He's inherited a taping system from Lyndon Johnson. So what, why is he taping himself? Don't, um, don't you tape all your conversations, Tom? Well, I am at the moment. <laughs> um, not, not always. Why is he? I mean, that's a really good question. Previous presidents had, had experimented with taping. So Lyndon Johnson, most obviously. Um, Nixon does it. It's a weird kind of self-protection, I think. If I record my conversations, they can't be used against me. I'll have control over them. People won't be able to say things that I haven't said. Um, who it's, knows? I mean, that's, that's, I mean, there's a fatal flaw in that, isn't there? Yeah. Well, you, if, if, you, if you're saying something that's massively incriminating. You then... just must make sure not to say anything stupid. Um, yeah. And uh, on the tapes, I mean, what, what it means, actually, interestingly about Nixon is, I think Richard Nixon is probably, possibly the most well-documented man who's ever lived in goodness because even even now in uh, well maybe maybe social media and well maybe i don't know i mean we have hours we don't have private i suppose private conversations no that that's the gold dust isn't it but the interesting thing is we have conversations that are utterly rambling inconsequential i mean there's some hilarious conversations nixon sits there with his sort of the berlin wall as they're called Haldeman, ehrlichman kissinger and so on and often they're just wittering in a way that would make us look erudite i mean they are <laughs> good nixon is sort of saying they're talking about how homosexuality brought down ancient greece nixon says he won't shake hands with anyone from san francisco because they're all gay they have these ludicrous conversations about um which had more influence, television or Socrates? <laughs> um, they're just sort of that's good, wittering. That's a good question. And Nixon is, and they're always, Nick, all his, he's also slightly showing off to them because he's always got that thing of, he's the school swat who wants to prove he's a kind of man's man. So he's always. And he's the president, isn't he? Yeah, he's, so, he's always kind yeah. of trying to show off and say, you know, but he's also trying to be more aggressive and reactionary, I think, than he is in, re- in reality. So he says lots of anti-Semitic things, lots of racist things. Um, which I, th- which, which people in other contexts have said, God, I can't believe Nixon could have been saying that because he was never like that. But I think he's so. It's like someone going going on a a cricket tour, Tom. <laughs> no, not on a cricket tour, on a, on a social media or something, and showing off. Exactly, that's exactly what he's uh, yeah. doing a lot of the time. But anyway, um, that's a bit of a sidetrack. So on the twenty second of June, nineteen seventy two, he has uh, the crucial conversation with H. R. Holderman, his chief of staff. Haldeman basically says to him, he says, what's going on with the Watergate thing? Now, I think that the way this conversation goes, you can read the transcript, suggests that Nixon didn't have a lot of prior knowledge of the burglary. He knows they're his guys and he's like, what are we going to do to fix it? And Haldeman says, well, it's not great. You know, the FBI are tracing the leads. They've traced them to they're tracing them to Hunt and Liddy. You know, it's going to come inside the White House. And, And Nixon says, well, okay, here's how we can shut this thing down. What we'll do is we will get, we will call the, you call the CIA, the head of the CIA, and you say to him, call the FBI and tell him this is a top secret kind of CIA-ish operation involving our Cuban guys. Don't follow this. It's national security. It's a whole can of worms. It's just a, 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 a bit of a mess. It's also a storm in a teacup. It's nothing. Don't get into it. Just back off. That's his... That's his plan. And um, and that, of course, is the incriminating thing, because that shows that Nixon is right then trying to obstruct justice. And that's the conversation, the revelation of that conversation, which we'll get to later on. 
that's what really brings him down. The fact that he knew straight away and he tried to stop the investigation in its tracks. OK, Dominic, you said later on. We've re- I think we've we've recorded 50 minutes worth. Have we? It? 43 yeah, minutes, we have. Tom, according to my... 43 minutes. OK, well, I reckon, I reckon that this... I think we should stop here. And I think we should put out another episode to follow on tomorrow. OK. And... Um, and when we come back, we'll look at the attempts to at, at the cover up, how it comes out, yeah. and then how the, uh, the the process of the the, um, the the pardon and the afterlife of Watergate. Cool, I'm looking Does forward to it. Good I'm idea? very excited about tomorrow's episode now. Uh, and and the, the the reason this pleases me is that you were very rude at me because <laughs> uh, I didn't get to the Battle of Thermopylae and Salamis in time. No, you didn't. So you didn't. Uh, I, I feel it's. But we did get to the Watergate breaking. Come on, give me a bit of slack. Yeah, we did. We did. Yeah, you did. You're better than me. All right. So um, so thanks for listening to this episode, guys. We will be back tomorrow with the uh, the aftermath of the Watergate break-in. See you then. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com.